Sustainability in Finance. Sustainability in Finance. A podcast hosted by the International Sustainable Finance Center in Prague. Join us and explore different perspectives of finance and its importance for the Central and Eastern European region. Hello and welcome. My name is Julian Toth and you are listening to Sustainability in Finance. The following episode is an audio recording of a panel discussion from the CE Sustainable Finance Summit, the largest conference of its kind in the region, which took place in Prague in May 2022. This special conversation between Ian Bremer, the president of Eurasia Group, and Professor Alexander Stubb, director of the School of Transnational Governance from the European University Institute, was moderated by Linda Zelina, the CEO of the International Sustainable Finance Center. Thank you very much for joining today. I'm very excited to welcome Ian and Alex to discuss something that has been on our minds across the world, seeing the horrible developments that we witness in Ukraine and the prolonged conflict that we're in now. And we are actually recording this conversation on 9th of May, which I think is very symbolic for so many people. So with us today, we have Professor Alexander Stubb, who is the Director of School for Transnational Governance in Florence at the EUI, a very well-known figure, former Prime Minister of Finland, a very outspoken commentator on the Ukraine crisis. We have been following very closely your fantastic posts across all the social media as well. And with us, we also have Mr. Ian Bremer from Eurasia Group, who's also a fantastic commentator on all things uh, foreign affairs and foreign policy. And very excitingly, is going to publish a new book very soon, which we are also very excited to await. And I think um, we have even put some pre-orders in. So without much further delay, let's just get started and dig into the topic. So if I can actually turn with the first question to you, Alex, Has the war in Ukraine made Europe more or less safe? How would you view the situation? Well, unfortunately, less safe. Uh, I mean, we've seen Russian aggression in the war in Georgia 2008, annexation of Crimea 2014, and a full-blown attack and invasion in 2022. And I, I, I think it would be kidding ourselves if we said that this makes Europe safer, it makes it more unsafe. And we're probably looking at a divided Europe for the foreseeable future, where on one side of the new Iron Curtain we have an aggressive, revisionist, imperialist Russia, and then on the other side of the curtain we have some 40 European democracies in various forms of cooperation inside the EU and NATO or outside. So I'd say less safe. Yeah, I've got to agree with that. It's, it's less safe. But one of the reasons it's less safe is because any outcome imaginable is deeply problematic and un- unstable from Putin's perspective. Uh, I mean, the Ukrainians have done a fantastic job in fighting against a much larger military force in Russia. The West has provided an extraordinary amount of support. It was a little late. It took a little time to come, but it's now certainly there. And yet, despite all of that, you could argue those things should make the Europeans feel better. But The Russians are going to be in a situation where they have no allies around them except for Belarus. They've got an incredibly hostile Ukraine that is uh, led by a war hero, an international hero across the NATO alliance. And they're also going to have an expanded NATO. They're going to have an enormous economic challenge. They're going to have bigger domestic political challenges. And all of that is going to make Putin feel like he needs to lash out. He's going to feel humiliated. And where is he going to lash out? It's going to be NATO. 
whether it's we're talking about cyber, whether we're talking about disinformation and espionage or even direct military attacks, I don't think we can just dispense with the nuclear saber rattling that we're seeing from Putin and his cabinet. All of this is existential at some real level for Europe. And so there's no question that a new Cold War and the end of the peace dividend is deeply problematic and destabilizing for all of our friends and allies in Europe. Thank you very much, Ian. Me being a Latvian, actually, I think that it's a very interesting situation. On one hand, the Baltics as well feel a lot more insecure, but seeing the potential for um, Sweden and um, Finland considering to join NATO, that immediately has actually made a big difference. Um, the Baltics feel much safer knowing that we might have very close, very like-minded allies joining as well. So that's, a, I think, a very positive development from at least the Baltic side. Um, yes, so I, I, think, I think actually, you know, I, I should show some Nordic gratification as well in the sense that when the Baltic states join NATO, I think that increased security in the Baltic Sea region. I can just imagine what the situation would be like at the moment if the Baltics were not in NATO. I mean, they would be part of Russian prey, much like Ukraine has been. So it's, it's time for us to, to do our bit as well. So, you know, it's a two-way street. Absolutely. So in terms of our future relationship with Russia, it's a big neighbor. It is not going away. We can't change the geography. So what can we expect the future relationship to look like? And how might this actually also affect our work and our relationship trade and so on and so forth with China? Because that is another big power that we have to work with, purely also because of the supply chains, because of a variety of reasons economically. So what kind of developments would you expect there? And I'll turn to you, Ian, first, since, um, since you run the Eurasia Group that does a lot of analysis on these kind of topics. Well, I, I do think that the future relationship is one of Cold War, where the new Iron Curtain is not in the middle of Europe. It's basically Russia, Belarus, Transnistria, and a little bit of occupied territory in Ukraine. And that, that's kind of it. And, and they are cut off. They are severed diplomatically, culturally, economically from Europe. And that is a strategically more sound place for the Europeans to be in the sense that they will be diversified from Russian gas and oil and coal and tourism and all the rest. But again, it's a very dangerous place for them to be because Russia is going to be incredibly angry about that. And I, I don't see Putin going anywhere anytime soon. So I think this is going to be a wounded but extremely angry regime and they will be angry first and foremost at NATO. And the, this, I don't see this conflict as, as staying, uh, in a sense, confined to the borders of Ukraine. And I think, you know, if there's anything you can read from Putin's May 9th speech earlier today, as we're taping, um, I think it's pretty clear that he wasn't announcing victory and then moving on. He's focusing on NATO. He didn't even mention Ukraine in the speech. The focus was on the West. The focus was on NATO. I, I, I'm not as worried about China in its linkage to this conflict, because unlike Russia, whose best days from the perspective of the Kremlin are really behind it, and that makes it so angry. And so they see a limited time frame to change their opportunities and perspective. But for Xi Jinping and for the Chinese, they feel like their best days are ahead of them. And, and they don't want to take steps in the near term 
that could potentially really strategically undermine that. And so as much as their worldview is aligned with Putin and with Russia, that they feel like the West is trying to contain them in Asia in the same way that they're containing Russia in Europe, actually, most Chinese companies are working hard not to break American and EU sanctions. They're not sending military support to Russia because they don't want to be in a new Cold War with the US and Europe. They recognize the importance of continued interdependence of those countries, even though the relationship has no trust and in many ways is broken. So I I think that there's clearly going to be more hostility and more wariness between the West and China But I don't think you're going to see anything close to the level of a severing of the relationship that you are seeing, that you have seen and you will see with the Russian government. Yeah, I'm I'm with Ian, obviously, on this. I don't know why, but probably because I read all of these newsletters. But (laughs) I think you could frame it to say that, you know, we will decouple relations with Russia, but we will not decouple relations with China. So start with the base case that Russia will be fully isolated politically, financially, economically, culture, sport, travel, energy, finance, you name it. Uh, and this is, you know, from a Finnish perspective, it's, it's a bit scary. We've always combined idealism and realism. Idealism is we want to cooperate bona fide with Russia and make them part of the West. Realism is to have a big army in case something uh, happens. Uh, and unfortunately, now we're moving towards a world which, you know, you could even argue that Russia is becoming a bit of you know, North Korea. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have the support of the rest of the world. I mean, there are a lot of countries that actually sympathize with Russia, but it, it's going to be difficult. Uh, now, the second observation then is on China. I, I think people, you know, pulled the trigger a little bit too early here and, and expected uh, China to pivot immediately with Russia. No, they're not. And the reasons were explained by, by Ian. Their vested interests are in the West, not in Russia. In Russia, they will do what they usually do. In other words, they create path dependencies. So where sanctions hit, uh, the, the Chinese go and help out in creating infrastructure and, and making basically Russia dependent on them. Remember that the Russian economy is over 10 times smaller than the Chinese one. So the Chinese don't really need the Russians. Uh, but with the West, say the example that I gave is that about 800 billion euros a year uh, is the business with the European Union, whereas it's less than 80 billion with, with, with Russia. And the Chinese companies and banks and, and the rest of them, they're scared about the secondary sanctions. And for a reason, that's why you haven't seen China put the foot wrong in this crisis. So, uh, again, I come back, decouple relations with Russia, but don't do it with China. Thank you. I couldn't agree more with the Chinese and um, their part dependency approach. It's also been one of the main reasons why I guess the sanctions are not uh, as tight as they could have been, because with sanctions, there's multiple ways how you can actually try and lessen the effect. And Chinese have been helping with a few elements and allowing Russia maybe not suffer quite as much if everybody was um, extremely united on those. So it's a bit harder, which brings me also to another question about the third countries. So we have, of course, the Western alliance, we have Russia and China. But what we also saw, which was worrying, is that um, across the board, there were multiple countries that weren't quite sure who to align with 
purely because of a variety of different economic or political interests. And as you both mentioned, that there might be some sort of a new Iron Curtain emerging. Would you also think that there might be a new type of Cold War dynamic emerging where different countries are trying to figure out whether this conflict uh, and this standoff between, let's say, Western Alliance and Russia is something that can be used to get to extract some sort of potential political gains or economic uh, gains from the EU or or Russia, uh, which we did see during the Cold War. And especially what I'd like to ask is, um, how do you view the critical minerals discussion? That has raised a lot of eyebrows and people are now worried about a lot of resources that we used to get from Russia, uh, that we used to get from Ukraine. Um, How do you think this will affect also the critical minerals discussion and our relations with uh, with countries globally, since we do need to strengthen our diplomacy, I guess, with, with different regions? I guess those are two, two separate questions, but let me focus probably on the first one, because I, I think that's the key question at the moment. I think this conflict in many European media, probably North American as well, has been framed in a slightly old-fashioned way, uh, as a conflict between Russia and the West. We have to understand that this also has ramifications for the West and the rest. So when we saw the vote in the UN, one for one against uh, 35 abstain and four in favor of Russia, we sort of took rejoice in the one for one, which is, yeah, good. But it was actually a fairly soft one for one and had to be scrambled together almost last minute. And, and the 35 that abstained, uh, you know, they, they, they represent over half the world's population, obviously, including China and India. And then when you start sort of scraping the surface a little bit, you start looking at, you know, say, African reactions. A lot of non-aligned states there, a lot of them not necessarily with antipathy against Ukraine, but sympathy with Russia in terms of, you know, earlier dependencies, uh, etc. Then you look in Latin America, well, you know, this week or last week, we saw former President Lula basically condemning Zelensky uh, for the war and, and Bolsonaro from the other extreme coming along those lines. So so the situation is, is, is not as clear as we thought it might be. And this is related to sort of Eurocentric approach that we have. Now, on the other side, you have people who are immediately saying, oh, this is the end of the globalization. And, and so I don't, I don't believe that. It's just probably the end of a Eurocentric or US-centric or Western-centric world. And this is what we have to understand. And that then you come to the point, I think we need to divide it in two. One is the values. Well, we still believe in the you know, universal Western values, whatever you want to call them. But it's clear that we're not going to be able to export them to the rest of the world in a way in which we thought that would happen in the early 1990s. So then I think we should tag on to the probably even more important one, and that's the rules-based world. And that's what's being attacked at the moment by, by the Russians. You know, they are violating the international rules that we set up in the Helsinki courts. They're violating UN charters and the rest of it. So there is going to be a bit of a reshuffle, I think, of power globally. But it's, it's going to be much more complicated than just a simple, you know, uh, two poles, black and white, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, there are going to be different power structures, uh, different alliances all around the world. Uh, and I think it's for us uh, political scientists and others to try to figure out what we're going to call this new era. Yeah, let me add on to that, because um, on the one hand, Russia is not a pole. You know, they're Russia. 
And as you saw, they had virtually no allies that were voting with them. They got like Belarus and Syria, North Korea. They would have gotten Venezuela, but they hadn't paid their arrears. So they weren't allowed to vote at the United Nations. But that's a that's a rogues gallery. So Russia is basically functionally by themselves. Support from China, as Alex and I have both argued, doesn't amount to nearly as much as it would if it was a meaningful alliance where the Chinese felt like they really needed Russia. On the other hand, the West isn't leading the world. And, you know, the Americans have portrayed this and Biden in particular has portrayed this as a fight between democracy and autocracy. And that's just wrong because a majority of the world's democracies actually want very little part of this fight. They certainly don't support the American led sanctions on Russia. What you have is the United States and the G7, the advanced industrial nations, and they're very aligned on this issue. They're angry at Russia and they are prepared to put a lot of support in the hands of Ukraine. They're prepared to do a lot to punish the Russians going forward. And then you look at the developing world, everyone, Mexico, South Africa, India, Indonesia, Pakistan, you name it, Brazil, and all of them are basically saying, you don't care about us. You guys, particularly the Americans, have been massive hypocrites when you talk about Iraq and Afghanistan and Yemen and Somalia. Where were you for Rwanda? You've done some good things, right? I mean, Panama, the Balkans, but on balance, you generally don't care. Um, and furthermore, when we really need your help, you tell us to go scratch. And whether it's the pandemic or whether it's economic aid, you name it. And now, while the Europeans are still getting gas and funding the war effort, you're telling us that we should be with you on Russia? No, thank you. So there is a real, there is no international community. I mean, I call it a G0, an absence of global leadership. The United States is not leading, I mean, it is leading the biggest part of the global economy in response to Russia, but increasingly, China is going to be the largest economy in the world. And as Alex already said, the world's population is already on, on a neutral path. And that's a much more fragmented, hard to manage, hard to lead, hard to respond and react to global crises environment geopolitically. Agreed. Thank you for that. I think that's very insightful analysis in terms of how this uh, complex world is getting maybe even a little bit more complex with these uh, dynamics that we're developing in the what we would like to call the post-Ukraine crisis, but the crisis is ongoing, I guess. So that is um, very upsetting. So just to wrap us quickly up, because we are running out of time, I just wanted to ask for the three main greatest positive and negative impacts that you see this war having. We always um, try to avoid talking about the positive impacts, but, um, but maybe there is some hope for future that we will learn the lessons and actually do things better or improve and prevent this from happening again. So just very quick, three main positive and negative things that you see. Okay, I'll be fast. Positive is uh, NATO is no longer brain dead. It has electric shock. It is no longer adrift. It has a mission and purpose. The West is closer together. Positive is that uh, Ukraine uh, has managed to, uh, to stay in cohesive as a regime. It's still there. It's still independent. That's an extraordinary thing. A lot of people would have presumed they wouldn't have been. And negative is that uh, Russia, a G20 economy, 
it is becoming a police state domestically, Stalinist domestically, and it's being severed from the West, which to go back to the beginning is a real problem for Europe. And also uh, very negative is that the, the instability that this will play for the world going forward at a time where we already have a climate crisis, a pandemic, driving instability, insecurity, food challenges, inflation. We didn't need this. And it creates opportunities for us to respond more effectively, but it's going to hurt a lot of people. Yeah, I guess the positive is that uh, everything that Putin tried to do, he failed. So he united Europe, he united NATO, he united the transatlantic partnership, he made Ukraine European. And uh, as a bonus or an icing on the cake, he made Finland and Sweden join NATO. I, I call this the Putin enlargement of NATO, the, the, the tenth one. So, you know, that's, that's the positive. And also showing that, you know, autocrats don't usually win, they lose. On the negative side, of course, there is the horrible loss of human life and destruction of uh, historic sites and, and infrastructure. There's the instability that uh, Ian mentioned. And we could probably see ramifications in the region itself. Don't know really whether this will have global ramifications. I don't think so. And, you know, as a Finn also, it's quite sad to see and to have to live next to a country with our 1,340 kilometers border, which is basically going to be backward uh, for the foreseeable future. So, uh, you know, had we had the choice, should this have happened? No. But once it has, I guess you have to try to look at the silver lining as well. Thank you so much, both. I think it's been a fantastic and insightful 20 minutes or so. So thank you very much for making the time. And I really hope that um, we do see the end of this conflict and that we start some sort of positive rebuilding and strengthening of Europe. And hopefully, hopefully, even more fingers crossed for also some sort of positive developments in Russia that would prevent a new Cold War or some sort of an iron curtain because the iron curtain was definitely not fun. Thank you both and thank you very much for joining and supporting us with yeah, taking part in the summit. Thank you for listening to Sustainability in Finance. Check out our website at isfc.org and make sure to follow us on social media for more content. We hope you join us for the next episode.